So we're glad you're here. What we do here uh, at this church is we generally pick a book of the Bible and we walk through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So we are continuing our study this evening of the Gospel of Mark. Um, and tonight we will be considering a warning that Jesus gives to his disciples about repentance and hell. Uh, we looked at this text last week, and instead of going through it and seeing our Lord's warning, uh, we spent our time considering specifically the doctrine of hell. And while that was an uncomfortable sermon to hear uh, and preach, frankly, nevertheless, uh, it was good for us to be reminded of the horrors of hell so that we can see the holiness of God, the wretchedness of sin, and the great mercy of God in Christ crucified and raised to save us from that hell. And this evening, we're looking at the same passage, but this time we'll be focusing not so much on the doctrine of hell contained there, but on the warning and exhortation that Jesus gives about repentance. And for the sake of time, and to help you focus on the seriousness of this text, I'm just going to cut to the chase in this introduction and give you the most straightforward summary of our Lord's words here in the text. Here's the summary of the passage we're going to be looking at. Deal with your sin. Repent of your known sin. Make a break with all known sin or go to hell. That's the warning of our text this evening. May God help us to listen to these strong words from Christ. And may God help us to heed them and repent where there is sin in our lives. So with that said, now if you would and are able, please stand with me for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Mark chapter 9, verses 43 through 48. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we ask now that you would bless the ministry of your holy word. Have mercy on us and make us open and receptive to the truth of sacred scripture. Son of God, please preach to us by the Spirit this evening. and Make us your sheep to hear your voice and follow you. Spirit of God, we ask that you would wield the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, and run us through with it. Triune God, by your mighty power, perform spiritual surgery on us this evening and remove the cancer that is our sin. Wound us so that you might heal us. Have mercy on us, O God, and grant to us a firm and glad reception of your truth. We ask for these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, so some context uh, to begin. Our Lord is continuing a conversation with his disciples that began in verse 33. Uh, you'll remember, or you'll pretend that you do, uh, you'll, you'll remember that this whole discourse began with the disciples fighting over who was the greatest. And Jesus, knowing this, he sits them down and begins to teach them what true greatness, what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. In verses 
33 through 37, Jesus tells um, them that true greatness is humility and humble service of your Christian brothers and sisters. And then in verses 38 through 41, Jesus teaches the disciples that they are to accept all Christians that they find and not just those in their particular group. That is, all Christians who are legitimately Christians are to be accepted and loved and encouraged. Transitioning from there in verse 42, Jesus gives a warning about causing a fellow Christian to sin. Right? Jesus say, says that we would be better to die than to cause another Christian to sin. It's better to have a great millstone tied around your neck and be hurled into the sea than to cause one of these little ones who believe in Christ to sin. It is a heinous thing to keep someone from following Christ as closely as possible. And that brings us to our text this evening. Jesus has given a strong warning about causing fellow Christians to sin, and he warns against it. But now here in verses 43 through 48, Jesus turns away from the warning against causing others to sin and gives a warning about causing yourself to fall into sin. It's as if Jesus says, don't cause anyone to sin and don't sin yourself either. Don't cause yourself to sin either. Now the passage before us this evening is a hard one. And what I mean by that is it's, a, it's actually quite simple. Um, it's a very, very easy text to understand. It, it says what it says. But it's a hard one to hear. It's a tough passage to stomach. And to be completely frank with you, it's a scary passage for the impenitent. It's a scary passage for the unrepentant person, for the hypocrite. It's a scary passage for the backslidden person. Jesus here speaks of cutting off hands and feet and gouging out eyes if they cause you to sin. This is some violent language. This is serious language our Lord uses. As I said in the introduction, I think the most straightforward way to summarize this text, no matter how uncomfortable it might make you feel, I think the best summary is deal with your sin, repent of your known sin, break with all known sin, or go to hell. That's hard to hear. There's not any wiggle room in this text. Jesus is being very straightforward. He wants to be understood. This is serious stuff, so he doesn't mince his words. But let me direct your attention to something. And we're going to spend some time in this uh, to begin. Who is it that Jesus gives this warning to? He's speaking about the necessity of repentance that is cutting off or tearing out your hand, foot, or eye. He's talking about the necessity of repentance or going to hell. But who is he speaking to? As I said earlier, um, this is a continuation of a conversation that Jesus began with his disciples. I, I believe there's someone outside if one of our deacons would grab the door. This is a continuation of a conversation that Jesus began with his disciples. That is, this warning is given to professing Christians. Hear that again. This warning is given to professing Christians. Now, usually when we think of warnings like this, repent or perish, repent or you will go to hell, we think of what we say to unbelievers. The warning we give to the unconverted and the unbelieving, those who just openly don't believe in Christ. And that's right and good, right? We should say such things to unbelievers. We should. We should give the warning to repent or perish. But Jesus says this to professing Christians. Consider that in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, they had just professed Jesus is the Christ. 
So why would this kind of warning be necessary to give to people who claim faith in Christ? Why does Jesus say this to his own disciples? That's a question I asked myself this week. Why does Jesus talk to his disciples this way? And I think that there's at least two reasons for this. Right? There's probably more, but two reasons that I came up with, or rather that I could think of. The first reason is there is such a thing as a falsely professing Christian. Now, this is heresy to say in the 21st century, but it's biblical. There is such thing as a falsely professing Christian. That is, not everyone who claims to be a Christian actually is a Christian. We call them false professors. There are many people who claim faith in Christ who are absolutely still dead in their sins. And their lives, the fruit of their lives, the way that they live, bears witness to the fact that they're still dead in their sin because they love their sin. And if you think... If you, if you think, well, that's a strange concept, uh, there, you already know of one very famous false professor. His name was Judas Iscariot. Right? I'm sure you all know of him, the betrayer of our Lord. Judas followed Jesus for three years with the rest of the apostles. But Judas was never a Christian. In John chapter 6, Jesus says early on in his ministry, I know one of you is the devil. I know one of you is a devil. He knew Judas wasn't a believer. Judas, mark this, Judas did not become a Christian and then lose his salvation. True Christians cannot lose their salvation. Read John chapter 10. Rather, Judas was a false Christian, and his love of sin, the fruit of his life, bore witness to that fact. But he is just one example. Now, to be blunt with you, many churches throughout the world are full of false professors. Some churches in our day are packed to the brim with them. I heard one pastor speaking of a church, even in our area, who said, I would be shocked to find out there was one saved person in that entire congregation. Churches are packed to the brim with false professors. People who claim to know Christ, claim to believe in him, claim to follow him, but are just like the rest of the world. They claim to be in the light while living in darkness. They cling to their sin and they love it. And they will not forsake their sin because their sin is precious to them. They find their sin to be delightful. And such people think that they're Christians. But they do so because they ignore the words of Jesus Christ here. Where he says, cut off your sin or go to hell. Or to put it another way, as John tells us in 1 John chapter 1, if anyone claims to have fellowship with God, if anyone claims to be in the light and walks in darkness, he is a liar. So Jesus speaks this way to professing Christians because he knows that there are such things as hypocrites, that is, a play actor. There are hypocrites and false professors. And because he is so kind, he warns such people to repent or perish. A second reason that Jesus speaks this way, right? He speaks this way to professing Christians because repentance is the daily duty and habit of the true Christian. Repentance is the daily duty and habit of the true Christian. You see, or at least I hope you understand, that repentance is not just a one-time thing that we do at the beginning of our Christian life. Right? Turning from sin isn't something we just do at the beginning. Repentance is the life of the Christian. Right? Or at least a huge part of our lives as Christians. Repentance, I want to be clear, repentance based on faith in the Lord Jesus. All right, repentance that flows from faith in Jesus. And here's what I mean. 
repentance because we believe that Jesus is Lord and he gets to dictate how we live. Repentance because we believe that we are not our own, but belong both body and soul to Jesus. Repentance because we love Jesus and believe that he has saved us from our sins. Repentance because we believe that Jesus has broken the power of sin over us and we're no longer slaves to the flesh. Repentance because we believe that Jesus died for our sins and now we hate those sins that he died for. Through faith in Christ, we repent. Christians are always repenting people every day. And this isn't just speculation on my part. We can see this very clearly from the testimony of the New Testament. Right? Just consider the letters in the New Testament. Who are they written to? They're written to churches. What's a church? A church is a group of professing Christians. And in those apostolic letters, there are numerous commands for us, rooted in the gospel, but commands nevertheless for us to be holy and repent of our sin and imitate Christ. Therefore, the Christian is to always be repenting. Faith and repentance are the daily habits of Christians. When we become aware of our sin through Scripture, or the gentle rebuke of a fellow Christian based in Scripture, or maybe not so gentle rebuke, as long as it's based in Scripture and we see our sin and we become aware, we repent. So then, Jesus knows that those who are actually Christians will live a life of repentance. So he tells those who profess to believe in him that they must repent of their sin or they will perish. Because where there is no ongoing repentance of known sin, there is no true saving faith in Jesus Christ. And where there is no saving faith in Christ, only hell awaits. So if a person has no repentance, hell is their destiny. In light of that, let me say this. Where there is no repentance of known sin in a professing Christian's life, there are two possibilities. One, the professing Christian actually is a Christian and is currently being very stupid and very disobedient. But by God's grace, they will eventually renew their repentance. Or second, the person is a false professor and will die in their sins and go to hell if they do not repent. Those are our options. There are no other options presented to us in the scriptures. Jesus' words here say what they say. Repent of your sin or you will go to hell. And that applies even to the Christian. This is a universal truth. Repentance is the fruit of saving faith. So where there is no repentance, there is only damnation that awaits the person. Now, a quick note here. I want to clarify something. You'll notice that I keep referring to known sin, right? That we must repent of known sin. That is sin that you are aware of in your life. And I keep saying known sin because no Christian will ever be perfect in this life. That's not an excuse for laziness. That's just a fact. Read Romans 7 and you'll see Paul as a Christian talking about his daily struggle against his flesh, against sin. Right? There will always be some part of our lives that sin remains. But as we continue on in our lives as Christians, what happens? God incrementally reveals our sin to us. And once it's revealed, the true Christian will repent of it and begin fighting it and begin killing his sin. But not all of our sin is revealed at once, I'm sure. 
right? Any of you guys ever get over one sin and then the Lord reveals, hey, did you know there was another one? Right, you begin to gain victory over one sin and the Lord's like, hey, did you know you're also greedy? No, Lord, I wasn't aware. <laughs> well, let's work on that now. And then once you get past that, the Lord reveals another one to you. Did you know you have short temper? No, I didn't know that either, Lord. Let's start working on that. God reveals our sins incrementally. And it's actually merciful of God to reveal our sins incrementally. Because it'd probably kill us if he showed us how sinful we actually are. So then, with that said, repent. Christians repent of known sin. And that fits very well with Jesus' words here. If your hand, foot, or eye causes you to sin, cut it off. That is... Once you become aware that your hand, foot, or eye is causing you to sin, then you are to take action. He doesn't just say, cut your hand off. He says, if it causes you to sin, cut it off. That means you have become aware that it's causing you to sin. Then you cut it off. So it is known sin that we're talking about here, not the false Wesleyan doctrine of Christian perfectionism. As John tells us in 1 John, anyone who says that they don't sin is a liar, and the truth is not in them. I fear for such a person's soul if they say that they don't sin. You're lying. So this is not Christian perfectionism. But let's get down into the specifics of our text. And we'll begin by reading it again. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Our Lord here speaks of hands, feet, and eyes causing us to sin. And that might seem a little strange. What do you mean my hand caused me to sin or my eye caused me to sin? But this is actually a fairly common way people spoke in the culture of the first century Jesus was in whenever they were describing a person committing sin. It was a common figure of speech to ascribe the sin committed to the body part of the person who committed it. You would say, my hand stole that bread. Right? Just a figure of speech. So Jesus isn't saying that hands, feet, or eyes can involuntarily make a person sin. That's not what he's saying. He's just using a common figure of speech to refer to someone sinning with their hands, eyes, or feet. Just wanted to clear that up for you. But what's interesting about Jesus' choice of body parts in this teaching is that he covers the whole person. In metaphor, he covers the whole person. The hands signify what a person does. Right? Most of our actions are done with our hands. The feet signify where a person goes. Right? And many times people go to certain places, even metaphorically, to sin. And the eyes signify what a person sees or desires, since it's by seeing that our sinful desires are often brought forth from our hearts. So Jesus is talking about sinning in any way. He covered all of his bases here, what we do, where we go, and what we see or desire. In a few words, this is masterful teaching. In a few words, Jesus mentions everything. Everything that we are. If there is any sin whatsoever in your life, if anything in your life causes you to sin, if anything in your life is a temptation to sin, if anything you do causes you to sin, anywhere you go tempts you to sin, anything you see causes you to sin, Jesus is giving 
no quarter for our sin. He's taking no prisoners. He's giving no caveats. If there is any sin in any part of your life, listen up, says Jesus. And I think there's something else worth mentioning about this metaphor that I didn't really catch until a few days ago. Jesus mentions things here that are very precious to us, doesn't he? Our hands, our feet, and our eyes. We tend to deem those body parts more precious than others. Would you rather lose an ear or a hand? Take my ear. I want my hand. Right? Jesus mentions body parts that are very, very precious to us. Nobody wants to go through life missing limbs or being blind. So then Jesus is saying that even if our sin, whatever it may be, is precious to us, it must go. I can't help but to think of Gollum from Lord of the Rings. Your sin is your precious, right? It's that thing you want. No matter how, quote, precious your sin might be to you, it must go. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter how much you might like it. It doesn't matter how comfortable the sin is. It doesn't matter how long you've been living in it and how accustomed you've grown to it. It doesn't matter how much you think that you've got a handle on it. We're foolish and think that often. It doesn't matter how much you are gaining from your sin from a worldly perspective. It doesn't matter how much temporary satisfaction you get from it. It does not matter how secret the sin is and that on earth only you know about it. Jesus is calling out all sins. No excuses. Even if it is as dear to you as your own hand, foot, or eye. All of it. And this is really helpful to us. And I say that because we often don't want to forsake our sin because we like it. Like, let's not pretend we're too holy to admit that we sin because we like to sin. That's why we don't forsake our sin. It's because we like it. Like Jonathan Edwards argued, we always do the thing that we desire the most. So when we sin, in that moment at least... We are desiring that sin. We are finding that sin more precious than anything else. Because God has forbidden it. And whenever we commit the sin anyway, we actually value that sin more than God in that moment. Which makes that, thing, that sin the most important thing to us. It's because we like it. It's because we find that sin valuable that we commit it. But Jesus says, I don't care if it's your hand. I don't care if it's your eye. No sin is too precious to avoid what I'm saying here. It's as if our Lord says, No sin brings so much temporary pleasure that it escapes my words. I'm talking about any and every sin. It's also good to note here that Jesus isn't just talking about external sins. right? Because if you're a recovering legalist like myself, that's where your mind has gone primarily to what I do with my hands or where I go with my feet. Remember in Mark 7, Jesus sharply reminds us that sin is an issue of the heart. And the sins we commit with our hands are just visible manifestations of what is in our hearts. And that's why I think that the eye is so important in Jesus' teaching here. Rarely is looking at something inherently sinful. But looking upon something with sinful desire is. And I don't just mean that with regard to sexual sin like lust. I'm talking about having a greedy eye, a proud eye, a covetous eye, a hateful eye, and the like. 
Sinful attitudes are included with this call to repent of all sins. After all, Jesus is talking about the whole man. Your hand's foot and your eye, whatever you do. Our Lord's words here cut like a knife. This is a masterful teaching from our Lord. Consider for a moment with me how Jesus has structured this. First, he speaks of all sin. Nothing is hidden from his words here. Hand, foot, eyes, all sin. He leaves nowhere to hide. He gives no quarter. Second, he speaks in the singular. If your hand causes you to sin. This is not vague. Jesus is speaking to individuals here. Yes, indeed, he is addressing the disciples as a whole group in this discourse. We see that starting in verse 33. But here, he's speaking in singular terms. Jesus is speaking to every individual disciple. Peter, if your hand causes you to sin. John, if your foot causes you to sin. James, if your eye causes you to sin. And so today, he's doing the same thing through the preaching of his word. He's speaking to me. David, if your eye causes you to sin. Nick, if your hand causes you to sin. Crystal, if your foot causes you to sin. He's speaking to every single one of us individually. This is a searching teaching from our Lord. It's meant to be processed by every individual who hears it. And third, he speaks in an open-ended way. And what I mean is, and this, this, was, this was big to me, Jesus doesn't give any examples of sins in this teaching. And I'm not going to give you one either. Jesus doesn't give any examples he doesn't use any illustrations here. He just leaves his, wor- he, he, he leaves his words without examples, I think, so that we are left to think about what he said and search our hearts by the grace of God. We're left with this open-ended teaching, and we're left to ask ourselves with all sincerity, am I sinning? Is there anything in my life that I need to forsake? Anything I do with my hands, anywhere I go, anything I desire, any attitude. Is there anything in my life, is there any disobedience, any sinful attitude, anything hindering me from following Christ with my whole life? Is there any part of my life that I refuse to turn over to the Lord Jesus? Jesus searches our hearts with these words and he makes us evaluate everything. He is the greatest teacher. And we would do well to let the words of the master have their intended effect upon us and think about what he's saying to each of us here. But what are we to do when we find sin? What do we do? What do we do with our known sin? Three words. Three very powerful words. Cut it off. Or if it's your eye, tear it out. Now let's be clear, this is metaphorical language. You don't want to make the mistake that Origen did and emasculate yourself. Jesus isn't calling anyone to mutilate their body here. He's not a modern surgeon giving advice to an eight-year-old who's confused. He's not telling you to mutilate your body. Rather, Jesus is using the strongest possible language to talk about how seriously our sin must be dealt with. 
There is to be an absolute abandoning of sin whenever it is found and wherever it is found in our lives. There is to be a cutting off, a repudiation, a separation, a casting away of sin. There is to be a clean break with sin, breaking apart with the intention to never again join together what God has separated. When you find sin, when you become aware of sin in your life, you are to forsake it with all godly hatred and detestation of it and yourself for having committed it. Cut it off. Do what needs to be done. Whatever it may be, whatever it may take, kill the sin. Get it out of your life. Do whatever needs to be done to avoid the temptation. Cut it off. Part with whatever is causing it. Part with the sin itself. Consider your sin to be a true enemy of your soul and a threat to your eternal life because it is. Deny yourself. Crucify the flesh. Mortify the flesh. Cut it off. There's no such thing as a pet sin for a Christian. May God help us. There is no such thing as a pet sin for a Christian. There may be sins that we war with for a long time. There may be sins that we must daily put to death every day, and it never seems to get much easier. But there are no sins that we knowingly give shelter to. There is no such thing as a pet sin for a Christian. That's like keeping a lion for a pet. That's stupid. Because that thing is eventually going to kill you. There are no pet sins in our homes, only a graveyard of hands, eyes, and feet outside. You know, every time I read these words, cut it off, I'm struck by how strong and unbending they are. For the last two weeks as I've been considering this text, every time that I become aware of my sin or I feel tempted to sin, it's like it echoes through my brain, cut it off. It's unbending. These words have zero sympathy in them. No sympathy toward the sin. And no exceptions for the Christian. Hear that again, please. There are no excuses and there are no exceptions. Cut it off. That's the command of our Lord. Now we are very good at justifying our sins. Aren't we? I am. I'll lawyer up in a heartbeat. We're very good at justifying our sins. We're very good at making up good excuses or what passes to our minds in sin as a good excuse for why we should continue on in our favorite sins. But to every excuse, I imagine our Lord looking at us and saying, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care how much you like that sin. I don't care how convenient it is for you. I don't care how much pleasure it brings you. I don't care what it's going to cost you to kill that sin. I don't care how strange it may make you look to the world. I don't care what kind of hell it's going to bring on you in this life. I don't care how hard it's going to be for you. I don't care how inconvenienced your life is going to become. I don't care. Cut it off. That's the unbending words of our Lord here. No excuses. Cut it off. Jesus is being merciless toward our sin in this text. 
and he's calling us to do the same. No, maybe I'm not. Maybe some of you are thinking, Pastor Dave, you're being too harsh here. You're being excessive, right? You're, you're preaching a little bit too hard. No, I am not. No, I'm not. Consider for a moment the metaphor of tearing out your eye. Jesus is metaphorically telling you to reach your fingers in behind your eyeball and rip your eye out of its socket. Don't call Bob. Tear your eye out with your hand. What's my point? In this metaphor, there is blood. In this metaphor, there is screaming in pain. In this metaphor, there is crying. There is difficulty. But Jesus says that it must be done. Period. In the words of John Piper, I don't want to see, hear your excuses. I want to see your scars. Cut it off. Tear it out. Wherever sin is found, it must be cut off immediately. There must be repentance, renunciation, and an earnest endeavoring to never commit the sin again. An earnest endeavor to never sin again. Now this does not sound like lowly Jesus, meek and mild, does it? It doesn't. This is a king. This is a king speaking. But since this doesn't sound like the, the hippie, everything's cool, 21st century version of Jesus, maybe you're asking yourself, why is Jesus so harsh here? Why is he so stern? It's because the consequences for not cutting off sin, the consequences for impenitence are so grave and awful. That's why Jesus is being so harsh and stern here. The stakes are too high with regard to sin and repentance. Jesus here tells us that if we cut off our sin, we will enter into life. Isn't that what he says? It's better to go into life with one hand. It's better to go into life or the kingdom of God with one eye. The stakes are too high. Heaven awaits. This is eternal life. Heaven awaits for the one who breaks with sin. But to the unrepentant, to the one who loves his sin and continues therein, and refuses to abandon it, hell awaits, even if that person is a professing Christian. Your profession means nothing. Your life will show what you believe. Profession can be just mere words. That's why James says, show me what you believe by what you do. The eternal wrath of God awaits the unrepentant. The fires of perdition await. The unending, hopeless hell of fire that I preached on last week is what awaits. Sin is too costly. Hell is too hot. And heaven is too wonderful for Jesus to mince his words here. Jesus is so strong in his words because he loves us. The stakes are too high and he loves us. He doesn't want us to perish. He desires our salvation, so he warns us. He doesn't want us to perish, so in no uncertain terms, he warns us. Let me illustrate this for you. When I'm in my backyard and making a fire, if my 18-month-old daughter begins to walk toward the fire with no one accompanying her, 
I will yell at her, stop! And she cries. Almost always she cries. She's a sensitive kid. It almost always makes her cry whenever her dad yells at her. It scares her, and I hate seeing her cry. But I would rather make her cry than watch her fall headlong into the flame. I would rather make her cry than watch her walk straight into the very thing that will kill her. And it's because I love her. She's my child. And I speak so harshly toward her in that moment because I love her more than she realizes. All she hears is an angry voice telling her to stop doing the thing that she wants to do. But what she doesn't see is a loving father protecting her from destruction. That's the heart of Christ here for us. He warns us with unyielding, strong language, even at times scary language, because he loves us so. He doesn't want us to fall headlong into the flames. He doesn't want his people to perish. We are precious to him. And so he tells us to stop. Stop walking toward the flame. Turn around and walk toward me. He calls us to repent because he loves us. And we need to remember that. At this time, I, I think it might be helpful for me to make a uh, theological clarification for some of you. Um, some of you guys might be worried that I've become a legalist. Uh, after all, I have said that if you don't break with your sin, you will go to hell. And some, I would assume not many, but some of you may say, that sounds like works righteousness. You're telling me to do something or I won't be saved. That's not reformed. That's not faith alone. That's not sola fide. David, have you become a Catholic? No. Far from it. Some of you may say to yourself, this does not sound like faith alone. And that would be true if I had said that you were justified by your repentance. But I haven't said that at all. I've merely said what Jesus says here. If you do not repent, you will go to hell. Now, repentance is indeed a work. It is. Repentance is a work. Repentance is something that you do. But it is a work that is only possible to do through faith in Christ. The fruit of faith is repentance. It is only when someone believes that they are a sinner and that Jesus Christ is the Savior that they will repent. It's only when, by God's grace, the heart of the sinner is united to Christ by faith that they begin to repent. Consider this. A person only repents from sin. And I mean truly repents. I'm not talking about a mere external moral reformation. I'm talking from the heart with legitimate sorrow for having committed the sin, detestation of it that results in a life change turning from the sin. A person only truly repents when they hate sin. And a person dead in sin, in their sinful nature, will only hate sin if God grants them a new nature in Christ. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when you were dead in your sins, made us alive together with Christ. He gave us a new nature. Dead in sin made alive in Christ. So then a person will only repent once they've been made alive. 
A person will only repent by faith in Christ. Repentance is the first act of faith. It's, it's the fruit of faith in the Lord Jesus. That's why our confession, the 1689, chapter 15, paragraph 3 says this. This saving repentance is an evangelical grace. That is a gospel grace or a saving grace whereby a person being by the Holy Spirit, made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin, doth by faith in Christ humble himself for it with godly sorrow, detestation of it, and self-abhorrence, praying for pardon and strength of grace with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. What our confession is saying is that repentance flows from faith. Repentance flows from faith. It is a grace of the gospel. That's what repentance is. It's a grace of the gospel. The command to repent fits very sweetly with the free grace and justification by faith alone of God in the gospel. Let me illustrate this for you. Maybe, maybe this will help. When a baby is born, it comes out of the womb and it takes its first breath and then it exhales, thus beginning the respiratory cycle. And it keeps breathing until it dies someday. In the same way, when a sinner is born again, he inhales faith in Christ and he exhales repentance. Thus beginning the cycle of continuous, persevering faith in Christ and repentance from sin that will continue until he dies. Repentance is the fruit of saving faith in Christ. There's no getting around it. Where there is no continual repentance, there is no abiding faith in Christ. And that's why Jesus can say to us, professing Christians, repent or you will go to hell. Because true faith is a living faith full of repentance from sin and holiness of life. Where there is no repentance, there is no saving faith. So then, being called to repent, being called to forsake sin is not legalism. And it's not a contradiction of the gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And a quick warning, if any of you were maybe thinking that, and I don't know your hearts, but I know I used to think like that. I used to think that this was legalism. Always beware of calling holiness legalism. And always beware of using the charge of legalism to justify your ongoing sin and lack of repentance. That is a dangerous place to be, Christian. That is a dangerous place to be. As we move into application now, I have three things to say to you. The first is this. Please see the love of Christ in this warning. He's not being mean. He loves you, and he doesn't wish you to perish. He doesn't want you to perish. He doesn't want you to go to hell. So he gives you such a stern and strong warning because he loves you. Always remember that. When you see any of the warnings in Scripture, you're warned because God loves you. Second, you must deal with your sin in a merciless manner. Cut it off. Do whatever you must. As our confession says, repent of particular sins particularly and do it now. Don't delay. A fool delays repentance. 
But maybe you're asking, how do I cut it off? How do I kill my sin? To answer that, I have six sentences, really, six very brief things to say. Confess your sins to God first. Confess your sin. Admit that you've done wrong. Own your sin before God. Second, renounce it. Renounce it. In your heart, detest it. Renounce it. You shouldn't have done it. Admit it. And admit that publicly if your sin is publicly known. Third, look to Christ who died for sinners, who is your righteousness before a holy God. Look to him in faith. Fourth, pray to God for help to not commit the sin again. He promises help. Cry out to him to keep his promise. Fifth, take steps to keep from committing the sin again. These are often very practical. These are often fairly common sense. Sixth, seek out wise counsel from your pastors or a very mature Christian. Everyone needs this, I might add. Seek out wise counsel on how to think about your sin properly, how to think about the gospel rightly, and what can be done to help you kill your sin. The steps to killing sin aren't glamorous, are they? There's no silver bullet remedy or I would shoot all of us. It doesn't exist. Mortifying sin is hard. Cutting off hands and feet and gouging out eyes is tough business. But as Paul tells us in his letters, by the power of the Spirit of God working mightily in us, we can do it. Never alone. But by the grace of God, we can kill our sin. Thirdly and lastly, I want you to be encouraged. Believe it or not. I want you to be encouraged, Christian. If you fight your sin, if you live a life of continual, ongoing repentance and faith in Christ, if you live a life where you're striving after holiness, if you are following Jesus in faith, then hear me. You are not going to hell. You're not. That's the implication of the text. If you don't repent, you're going to hell. What does that mean then? If you're living a life of penitence, then you're not going to hell. Be encouraged. You are entitled to the assurance of salvation that God extends to his people. Take it. Take it. With both hands, take it. God's extending it to you. The warning of this text is a serious one that everyone, all of us, needs to hear and needs to heed. But it's primarily a word to the hypocrite. A word to the unconverted. It's a word to the backslidden. But to the disciple who is trusting in the Savior and waging daily war on his or her sin, this warning should actually give you assurance. You're not going to hell. As I said earlier in my illustration, you are breathing. That means you're alive. You're born again. You're inhaling faith in Christ and exhaling, and, and exhaling repentance. You are alive in Christ and it's evidenced in how you live your life. So reach out to God and take the blessed assurance that he gives to those who fear him. Take it. And remember, Jesus is not talking here about a form of salvation by works. Nor is he talking about the heresy of Christian perfectionism. Far from it. He's talking about repentance being the fruit of true faith. So once again, I'm beating this point 
to death. If you are living a godly life of following the Savior, then you should have all the assurance in the world that heaven will be your home, and you need not fear hell. You need to continually fear God, but you need not fear hell. Be assured, Christian, you will hear one day, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. May God graciously grant us all true repentance. And by his grace, may he preserve us so we persevere in faithfulness to the end. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for your word that cuts us deeply. Lord, you don't, you don't cut your people like an executioner. You cut us like a surgeon. That you might make us whole. That you might teach us to live as true human beings. Fearing you and loving you and honoring you. You wound us with your word in order to... Bring us to Christ. Who is the true man that we might follow after him, being freely justified by him through faith, that we might begin to imitate him. God, help us. Grant us repentance from the heart. Help us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Help us to bear the fruit of faith, which is a godly life. Help us, Lord. And help us to remember this is only done through faith in the Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. We pray it in his name. Amen.